guys. Welcome back to Into the Light, A Different Life Story, my show on YouTube and as a podcast with me, your host, Stefan Neff. Today is another great day for an interview. Yes, because I have got another fantastic guest. And my guest today is a woman who has made it her mission to shorten the periods of pain that inevitably hit us in our lives. And there are so many reasons why we end up in pain, but one of the ones are, one of the reasons is other people. And there are times when we feel utterly betrayed. And that is one of the most awful feelings, speaking from my own heart. And I've got Holly Kenley with me, who is an expert in that and has written several books on betrayal. And I'm actually very, very a little bit self-conscious because I know that <laughs> you will you will dig up quite a few emotions during this interview in me. And uh, there are probably certain certain times in my life when I felt incredibly betrayed and I probably have not dealt with that. So Holly, I'm in for um, quite a memorable ride. There was very little doubt in my mind. <laughs> Uh, and so are my viewers today. So Holly Kenley, thank you so much for coming onto my show. Stefan, thank you so much for having mm -hmm. me. It is a privilege and I love your podcast and I so admire the healing and messages and, and the hope that you offer up to your listeners. So thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you very much. Uh, Holly, it is betrayal is one of these these things that will happen to every single one of us. Uh, there is no doubt, and it will happen for many of us. It will happen many times throughout our life. So my educated guess is that you are just like us, um, that you have had your fair share of betrayal, which ignited that search for knowledge and skills and actually going through it. Are you happy to share how your own journey started today? I am very willing and I would love to share this. And because of my lifespan is a little longer, I, I just will kind of break my traumatic experience, if you will, or my betrayal experience and the first part would be from birth to about age 18. And of course, I didn't have the word betrayal back then in my mind. Um, so I use that as in reference to, to looking back. I do want to say, Stefan, that some of the material I'll be coming, be covering is a little sensitive, um, just to give a heads up to our listeners. And so I was born in the 50s um, into an alcoholic family system to very young parents who I believe were ill-equipped to raise a family. The system was incredibly rigid, authoritarian, critical. And for me, it felt highly emotionally unsafe and unpredictable. I was the second of four daughters and I was shy and sensitive. I was a peacemaker, people pleaser, and at a young age, a parentified child. 
in my early memories, um, I remember my mother being a very good mother my, to my older sister and me. And my father was always angry and on edge, but I, I do remember my mother being a good mother. And then when I was four, my younger sister was born and things got a little more tense. Things got a little bit more angry, a little bit more difficult. Um, I remember kind of walking on eggshells and such, but the big shift in my family came when I was six and my youngest sister was born and she was a very, very difficult baby. And as she grew up and matured, there were a lot of physiological, psychological and emotional issues. And this is the important part of this piece is that my mother was very bonded to her, very enmeshed with her. It was a very symbiotic relationship. And so there was um, a detachment from her at an early age. And a couple of memories that I have that are, that are difficult at, at a young age. Once again, when she was born, as I said, the house just became much more, um, just really angry and especially around the cocktail hour or the highball hour as it was called in, in my household. But really during the day, you know, chronically, there was upset and overwhelm. And when my mother would perceive that my older sister, I had disrespected her or talked back to her, she would take, well, I'll speak for myself, she would take me into the back bathroom and I would stand on this little stool and she would give me my choice of having my mouth peppered or washed out with soap. And I, I never like to quantify um, or qualify different kinds of abuse. It's not that, but we, you know, we tend to tend to think of abuse as really, really horrific things. But Stefan, there's something about having your mouth washed out with soap, or it did for me that really just um, scoured my soul. Um, that's kind of the only way that I can describe it. And so this was a ritual that happened frequently for a number of years. And so I became sort of afraid of my mother. I just, again, distanced myself. I had a lot of responsibility as did my older sister. We were just a year apart and just really worked hard at not upsetting anyone and just going and doing what I was supposed to do. One other memory in this early childhood that I write about and, and I talk about freely is that when I was, I think it was about eight, uh, we lived in California, but we would spend our summers in a little town in Nevada, in the northeastern corner of Nevada, it's called Ely. And was actually where my grandparents lived, both sets that we would go and stay with my paternal grandparents. And those are actually some of the fonder memories of my childhood. My parents were on little better behavior and there wasn't as much financial stress as well on our family. Well, my grandparents always went to the horse races in the summer and they had their own box there. And we were there watching the races. And to this day, Stefan, I don't know why, but I turned around and I asked my mother if I could go home, go back to my grandparents' home. And she said, of course not, you can't. We're here enjoying the day. And 
I said I wanted to go back to my grandparents' house. And she said, well, if you want to go home, you'll have to walk. And so I got up and I left. And again, this, this seems so strange to me because I was a pretty compliant child, but I did. And I walked through this very long uh, dirt driveway and parking area. And then I was almost to the highway and I heard my mother yelling for me. And I turned around and she was marching towards me. And of course she was angry and frightened. And she had this big heavy bag or purse on her arm. And so I stopped and I actually turned and started walking towards her and she caught up with me and she grabbed me. And every step I took back towards where our car was, which was quite a ways, she beat me with that bag and with her hand. And I think she had her keys in her hand also. And I remember thinking that I could feel her hatred for me. It, I could feel that rage. It, it, it just, it, it, I could, like the washing of my mouth, it just entered the soul of who I was. And um, she took me to the car. I think she took me back to my grandparents' house or either I waited in the car, I'm not sure. But that incident was never, ever spoken of again until about 10 years ago where it was just brushed off and laughed about, but no one ever spoke of it. And so those were two memories that really changed and altered. And then when I was 11, I was over at a neighbor's house and she, we were there alone. She was an older teen female, much larger than me and bigger than me. Um, and a game of tag turned into a violent assault on me. And she was on top of me and sexually assaulting me. I fought for, I'm not sure how long, and I was able to get away kind of slither out from underneath. I was a pretty petite child. And I ran home and I ran into my house and I'll never forget, my mother was standing at the sink and I ran up to her and I, of course I was crying and sobbing and my clothes were torn. And I told her what happened. And she said, don't ever speak about this again and go change your clothes. And I, Remember being in my bedroom at age 11 and changing my clothes and crying. And, and I made myself two promises at that point. And the first promise was that even though I didn't understand, of course, what was going on in my environment, I had a couple of girlfriends, one in particular had extremely loving mother. And I, so I did have that comparison but I made myself a promise that I was going to do whatever it took academically and musically, because those were the two things I was really good at and interested in. I was going to do whatever it took to graduate and get out of that environment. And the second promise that I made myself is that if I ever had the privilege of being a mother, that I would do it differently. 
And so there's one other traumatic incident that happened, and that was a couple of years later when I was 13. My parents arranged for me to spend, it was about a month, at some distant relative's ranch in another state. I didn't know them very well, um, seen them a few times, but they had made this arrangement for a variety of reasons. I went there. And this is all I'll say about that is that I just refer to it as the house of horrors. There were just demented and disturbed people, individuals in that family. And when I came home, I was repeatedly victimized. And when I came home at the end of that summer, I never said anything. Of course, why would I? Nobody would believe me and nobody would do anything about it. So that and the prior assault at age 11, I just buried I just repressed it and reminded myself of my focus, of my goal, and just kept that going. Wow. Wow. What can you say about that? It, it drives me crazy how often I heard variations of such a story from my guests here on this show. Mm. And it is probably so much more common mm. than we like to believe. The leave alone the emotional abuse, which is, oh God, so much out there. The way we 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 cut our little people down um and and destroy their 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 beautiful blossoming creativity and naivety and 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 craziness now i'm talking about the the physical and sexual abuse mm -hmm. that is prevalent at a level that makes that should make everyone sick but the sad thing is because there are so many people out there who have suffered it it is it is a very sick society uh, in mm -hmm. which we are living and you're referring to the United States. This, I've had two marvelous guests recently here who spoke about the New Zealand perspective and similar time frame, and and very similar, like a house of horror, but for their whole childhood. Mm -hmm. I think that's really important that we acknowledge that because I don't yes. think that these things have gone away. I think these things are still ongoing very much so out there in our society. And I think it is important that we all recognize that and listen to our children and see what they are coming back with to us and believe them and foster an open environment where they can talk. I think that's, that's the very first thing that comes to my mind yeah. that I want to spell out here. It is an... My parents, uh, as I said to Stefan, they they married very early. My mother was expecting, and back then, um, it was mm. in their families not an option. You, mm. they were married, mm. and um, my father was really a gifted musician, mm. and he was at college in Pomona, a wonderful music school in Southern California, pursuing his career as a he wanted to be a professional musician. 
And my mother was in nursing school in Idaho. And those dreams were cut short. And he also suffered. I'm not excusing anything. I'm just explaining, you know, the, their backgrounds. And he also stu- suffered a, a, a really difficult um, injury on his leg when he was a young boy um, before penicillin and developed uh, osteomyelitis and had many, many, many surgeries all through his middle school and high school years to save that leg. And I share that because he was always in a lot of pain. The leg was saved, but it was always causing him a lot of pain. And his dream of being a professional musician in order to support his family, he went into teaching music, which he was really good at, but he just did not, he didn't like it. That wasn't his passion. So he had so much anger in him, his trauma in his life and having that dream cut short and then raising a young family who he it didn't want. I mean, we were told that we weren't planned, that we weren't, of course, we interpreted that as not being wanted. It was mm-hmm. a joke about the different forms of contraception. And we all had nicknames and mine was horrible Holly. And so, and there was so much criticism. I think that for my sisters and myself was probably one of the most difficult things because my older sister and myself and my younger sister, we were very high achieving. I took up music and became very good at it, you know, mainly to please him. But then I developed a love for it and got a lot of recognition for that. And, but it was always not enough. And so they were both unhappy. I believe my mother had major depressive disorder. As I look back, Um, we believe that there was a suicide attempt on her part when she was pregnant with my youngest sister. So, and I say believe because I don't know for sure that was another sister who found that truth out. a lot of secrets in our family and um, a lot of pain all the way around. And I'm sure if you were to go one more generation back, you would have the implications of the Great Depression and mm-hmm. of the Second World War and all those, those damaged and destroyed dreams and families mm-hmm. damaged and destroyed. So upheaval after upheaval after upheaval. And mm-hmm. it is no surprise to me that you have been focused on this kind of research and this kind of, of knowledge about betrayal with that background. And the, what amazes me, however, is the the transformation that you then actually have gone through because it would have been so easy to stay in this mold and that is what what we see is this re-victimization again and again and again the next thing then is abusive uh, relationships and divorce and then another abusive relationship and so on and then somewhere along the line the alcohol comes in 
or might be integral from the word go to escape reality. And then children come and then the whole story repeats. We see that so much in our society. What made you different? What changed your story? In all fairness, Stefan, in my late teens and early 20s, some of what you describe describes me. <laughs> so I, I don't want to, I'll just kind of. <laughs> don't, throw, don't throw stones in a glass house. Okay, I hear yeah, you. I, I hear just, you, you know, I, I, so I, if we have time, I, I, I'd like to touch upon that oh, yes. a little Oh, bit. yes, please. And so, well, I did achieve my goal of graduating from high school with honors. And in fact, I had a full ride to a conservatory of music. Unfortunately, that conservatory was in the town that we lived at the University of Pacific. And then I also applied to University of California at Santa Barbara. And though, although I knew that musically that it would better be better for me to go to the conservatory, there was no way I, I would take that. And I had to fight for going to UC Santa Barbara. I had to stand up to my parents and I did. And I, um, I said, it doesn't matter how I'll pay for it. I'll do whatever I need to do. But I, I, I had to get out of there. I had to keep that promise to myself. So I did. And one of the things that happened during my freshman year, I was just in Santa Barbara a few months and enrolled in school and, and just is so beautiful there and feeling somewhat settled. Uh, a wonderful guy that I dated in high school who went to the University of Pacific, we broke up. It was mutual because we were 350 miles apart, but I was sad about that. And I did have depression and anxiety, especially around, I didn't piece this together till later, but especially around my menstrual cycle, it just seemed to get a thousand times worse. Uh, but so I did have these bouts of depression, and anxiety. And so I'm at UC Santa Barbara, I finally accomplished this goal. There were a lot of anti-war protests and things going on during the Vietnam War. And, and I, I wasn't accustomed to that. I, it, it just, it was kind of frightening to me. I thought I was going to a safe place. So I just wanted to put that out there because it was just kind of this, you know, a kind of cloud of stress going on. Mm. And, um, Unfortunately, one afternoon, I was in the practice room practicing a piano duet. I was a flautist, but we had to take piano also with a, another with a, another person in the music department. And I had known her for a few weeks for practicing away, and she exposes herself to me. And at that moment, even though I didn't understand, I remember feeling like I had a target on my head. You know, what, what is wrong with me that these horrible things happen? And I picked up my music. I ran back to the dorm. It was on the eighth floor of this really neat dorm. And I met a lot of wonderful girls. And I, I didn't want to die. And I knew people were around, but I took a razor and I sliced my wrist. And a few minutes later, and my room, some gals knew that I was kind of struggling and they came in to check on me. And it, it was a superficial wound, but still the, the fact that I did that, they were so supportive. I, they took me to the hospital 
And the doctors and the staff at the hospital said, you have to go home. And I wasn't 18 yet. So I really, because my birthday is late. And I just fought and I just said, I mean, just with my voice, I said, if I go home, I will die. I will die. And so they said, well, the only other option is that you get into counseling. And so I did. And so every week I drove into Santa Barbara, borrowed somebody's car and drove in because the campus is a little ways away. And I saw a psychiatrist and and I called him the wizard, but like the Wizard of Oz. Um, he was so warm and he was so comfortable and he was safe. And there wasn't any deep work there, but it was the first time that I was able to talk about my feelings and have someone just be a safe harbor for me. And something interesting, Stefan, that he did, he asked my permission at the beginning of our work to tape our sessions. And I said, yes. And then at the end, he asked um, if I wanted to hear the first sessions and he was still taping them. So he played a little bit from the first couple sessions. And then at the end, and it sounded like two different people. <laughs> and I share that because that gave me hope to hear my voice, that voice that had been soaked, that had been scoured, and to hear that. And again, we didn't do any deep work, but I had that beautiful experience with him. And there was still a lot, okay, to shorten this up during the rest of my mm. 20s, I graduated, I lived abroad in France for a year to study. My senior year, I married a narcissistic alcoholic, an associate <laughs> professor. Um, he was abusive. It was awful. Um, so that I could get out of that relationship, I went to a, he had a job at a university in a, in a different town. I went to a counselor and I said, here's my degree in French and music and I can speak Swedish, but what, what can I do? And she said, the fastest thing for you to do uh, if you want to get a job and support yourself is to become a teacher, which I didn't really want to, but I had to put together a plan, which I did. And I got my credential. I got out of the marriage and um, got a teaching job. I did remarry a second time and it didn't last very long. He was a wonderful man, but he was broken. And then I continued on. And then in my early thirties, uh, I met my current husband, Dan, and through again, a long story of a female friend who I started to disclose, not about my trauma, but just about this, these horrific bouts of depression and anxiety and anger and rage. And I had a little girl at this time and I kept remembering that promise. And so she referred me to a doctor. I went to this doctor, female a nurse practitioner who worked for an OBGYN and she assessed, diagnosed and treated me for what we now call PMDD, premenstrual dysphoric disorder. Back then it was kind of a joke called PMS, but she believed in it. And this was life-changing, Stefan, because she gave me a holistic approach to my wellness. It was mind, body, and spirit, nutrition, exercise, stress reduction, sleep, uh, vitamins, 
and natural progesterone and counseling. Start seeing a counselor for the maladaptive behaviors and cognitive distortions, a female counselor, worked with her for a year. Again, we didn't go into the deep work, but at the end of that year, she said, Holly, oh, my husband and I made the decision that we were going to move away, far away back to Southern California, uh, which was an important piece of my healing journey as well. But she said, Holly, there's something more there. Um, I hope when you and Dan get settled and when you're in a good place that you will seek out and do some deep work on whatever is there with you. But for the next several years, I my number one priority was my wellness. And it always has been, Stefan. There's nothing or no one that is more important than that. So I embraced this program of recovery. And when we moved, we moved down into the mountains of Southern California by the desert where I live now. And I share that because we bought five acres up in the mountains and had a home built. And being up in nature is where I, because I was a runner and then a, a power walker, I would just absorb myself in nature. It was an integral part and still is to this day of my healing. And I began therapy. I found a wonderful female therapist and did the really deep, deep hard work. She was trained in hypnotherapy and we had many sessions with that because so much of that was so repressed, especially the, the trauma at age 13. And I worked with her for a long time. I started reading, I went to Al-Anon. I read every book I could get my hands on and codependency and this and that. And just that, I was a teacher, but this became, you know, just my passion about living a more whole and well life. Every time I would look at my little girl, I would just, I even got more motivated. And then after I had a few years under my belt, I wanted to give back because this is in the early nineties and there was still a lot of stigma and shame and secrecy around PMS or PMDD. And so I started leading some lay support groups and every 12 weeks I would lead these psychoeducational groups and I kept it as a closed group. You had to sign up and at the end of 12 weeks I would have another waiting list. And I was wise enough to refer women out um, for if they had depression or anxiety or, you know, for a physical, if, if, if PMDD wasn't the diagnosis, which with the way we were assessing it, it would kind of really flush that out or rule that out if that wasn't the presenting issue. So I worked well with a couple of doctors here in the area where I live. And after, towards the end of that experience, I started writing a book, uh, my first book called The PMS Puzzle. And then this is, was the impetus for me going back to graduate school. I wanted to help on a professional level and get my degree in psychology and become a licensed marriage and family therapist. Beautiful. Beautiful, beautiful. And it is, it is remarkable how instrumental trauma actually was and putting you so far outside of your comfort zone 
that you simply had to change and had to look at the focus in your life and reevaluate that. We see that again and again, that, that we, are, we are starting on a new path, but that path is meandering. And sometimes you can stray away of your path. However, uh, there are things that, that, that lead you to your destiny. And literally, there you are here, having committed actually at a very young age to, to change the cycle, uh, to not become the end product, uh, the, the, the repetition of everything that happened mm-hmm. in, in the past. Uh, the past truly does not equal the future. So that's mm-hmm. one of the key things that we can learn here from you. This is you have put your mind to it. And it was not easy. Yeah. But what I hear is, here is several things. A, you admitted to yourself that things were truly not right and <laughs> things needed to change. You were willing to, to look for help and accept the help. And that's so important because if you look at, at addictions, 95% of alcoholics think there's absolutely nothing wrong mm-hmm. with the sheer fact that they are living in an absolute mess uh, in their in their own hell up here. And but that is part and parcel of addiction. That's the lie that alcohol tells us. So as far as addiction goes, that's a classic example. But the same applies to women living in toxic relationships, regardless how bad it is. Our brain comes up with so many reasons why we why it would be absolutely impossible to leave that relationship because of this, because of that, etc. And it is you cut through that, you cut, you blew that fog of war out of the way and actually said, now, what is my, my dream? You turned it into a vision, you turned it into a mission. And that is, wow. What I love to hear is that you actually, that you accepted that help when you were actually quite at a young age, because normally when you're young, you're bulletproof, full of hormones, boys and girls alike. <laughs> and so we know it all better. But but here you are. Why do you think that was that that you at a young age were actually seeing that psychiatrist, that counseling? Was that really because someone twisted your arm? Uh, I mean, you were 17 there. Was it really mm-hmm. uh, if you, that you were forced to it or did you, were you open at that time? to seek help. Mm. Stefan, I was very open. I I knew that here was I alluded to this earlier is that when I made those promises at age 11, I knew I was on my own. I, I knew that when I write about my chapter in my daughter's book, I call it flying solo. I knew I was on my own. And so I knew that if anything was going to change, I had to do it. And also being that codependent child who, you know, wanted to take care of things and get things done and and, and a type A personality and all of that kind of thing. I just, that just drove me. The, The other important thing, and I didn't piece this together till later, is that there were significant people in my life, especially in the area of music. I you know, took private lessons. I studied, I was in the youth symphony and there were these other people putting these messages in my ear that I had something. 
you know, that I was talented. And so I put pieces together that if I gave to something really wholeheartedly and it gave back to me with awards, with recognition, with affirmation, with validation, I wanted that. I was hungry for that. Of course. So even in that hospital bed, I was still hungry for that college education and that college experience. Just beautiful. I remember the first time that I brought home a good mark. I was I was quite a mediocre student. And my my stepfather at that time tried to bribe me. Look, if you if you come home with the best in your class uh, test, then you get five Deutschmark, and and uh, if you're the second, you get two Deutschmarks. Anything thereafter doesn't count. And there I was, I uh, from from very mediocre, suddenly was best of class. Now that had very unexpected flow on effects. A, I saw that pride in my parents, where the first time I felt, oh, they are actually not just talking down on me and, and criticizing me, but actually were proud of me. So that was beautiful. Very unexpectedly, I did not become the nerd. We didn't have that culture in Germany. <laughs> on the contrary, I became wow, you did it, especially because I actually showed the, I showed the teacher off. Uh, it was one particular history teacher that no one liked. And I made it a mission to know more than a history teacher. And I succeeded in that. And therefore, I became the hero in my class. So all the cool kids oh. now laughed me for <laughs> what I was doing. Oh. So it was all that thing. But I remember that glow, that pride, mm -hmm. the first time of being wow, someone actually slaps you on the shoulder and said, well done. That was, oh, that was such a beautiful feeling, mm -hmm. a feeling that I had not really known. And therefore, there's so much to be said about how we talk to our children, how mm -hmm. we, how our words can be so much more hurting and destructive than a chainsaw, literally. Um, it's yes. just how we how we talk to our children at a very young age makes all the difference. And I think yes. that is need to talk about that. And we need to bring that out because it's so mm -hmm. easy to be the grumpy dad. And yes, you have worked your guts out. You are in your 30s. You have just worked 12 hours, 14 hours. You're coming home. You're hungry, angry, lonely, tired yourself. And then, of course, you're lashing out at those people who you love, because that's finally when you can be safe, when you actually can let your own mask down. Mm -hmm. But the flow on effect of that at such an early age, I think I've destroyed a lot in my children mm -hmm. due to me being that angry and mm -hmm. resentful and, 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 and hurt man that I was. I felt betrayed by so many things around me and my the anger and resentment that was burning like a, like the, the brightest fire in my soul. And it destroyed me. It burnt me from the inside out. So it is, I, I so can see it all happening. And I, and you look around it, you see it happening daily in those people yes. around you. So this is therefore your, your talk, your, your, 
your your books are so important because hopefully they hold the mirror in front of someone's face and actually and actually say look this is what is happening right now mm-hmm. and the yeah. typical answer will be yes 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 but they look what mm-hmm. they did to me and uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> this external locus of control this this kind of being powerless being 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 oh so upset and that is that these are the the very things that we have to to work with and i guess that is these are the, the things that that you are addressing so you i mean you had this this beautiful journey of seeking help and getting different help sort of what we always talk about the, the onion layers and that you you peeled off one layer and you found more pus there and instead of putting a band-aid on it you actually dealt with the issue healed there and then you stripped off the next layer and you found a bit more mold <laughs> there that you cut out so that was your journey but look where you yes. ended up now you are this woman here who is who is proud of herself who loves herself mm-hmm. who accepts herself mm-hmm. warts and all and that is the, the beautiful, the beautiful thing. But you have got a lifetime of trauma and a lifetime of healing. Many mm-hmm. of our viewers, they're they at the start. They they are hurting. They are yes. they are they feel hard done by, and quite rightly so, especially now uh, with COVID hitting us. There is economic mm-hmm. instability around the world. There's how many how many relationships are on the fritz because of exactly the, the, those uncertainties. So mm-hmm. if if you had if you were to to see something like that happening in someone you have just met and someone who is actually dear to you, what would you tell that person? In the work, I just want to side note here, Stefan, is that as a licensed marriage and family therapist for over 20 years now, about 25, I work in the areas of sexual abuse and trauma recovery, individuals, males and females, and do a lot of work with couples as well. And so if I'm, you know, I'm careful if I meet somebody just in person and it's casual talk as opposed to if I'm, you know, working with someone in, in therapy. Absolutely. Absolutely. One of, one of the things that is really keeps people stuck. In, well, there's several things, but one of the things is that meet well-meaning people say, just give it time. You'll get over the betrayal or just learn to trust again or forgive. And, to me, those are just, you know, really, really harmful. Um, but putting that over there, I just gently put out this concept that with betrayal, that we have to right ourselves. As long as we wait for someone or something to come along and make it right for us, then we're putting our healing on hold, and we're also tethering our healing to what they do or they don't do. And that those are two of the most common, I call them kind of traps that people fall into. So rather than give them platitudes or anything, I'll, I just kind of encourage them 
to here's the thing with betrayal is that it was one of the most fascinating things I found in my research with betrayal. Whereas grief, we used to we treat betrayal like a loss issue, and it is that, but it's so much more than that. And the grief methodologies and approaches, in my opinion, are not enough. With grief, we turn inward and we're depressed and we're, you know, we're sad and we, but we turn inward. With betrayal, we turn outward. Why? Because we are trying so desperately to re-secure our truths. Our, our truths have been redefined. We've been redefined by our betrayal injury. So we're out looking outward, trying to find answers as to why, trying to reinstate our worth and trying to secure some type of feeling like we're in control or in charge because we feel powerless. And so what's so insidious about the nature of betrayal is that what we need to do is turn inward. And that's where the work starts and it's so hard. And in my initial research, I identified these three states of being. I didn't want to call them stages because that's kind of the grief piece, the stages of grief. I call them the states of being that we go through the state of confusion, the state of worthlessness, and the state of powerlessness. Mm -hmm. And until we can work through those and validate those and affirm those and and challenge ourselves through those by turning inward and in, in doing the work around those, those three states of being and, and really kind of calming and recentering ourselves and writing ourselves that we are going to continue spinning out there looking for band-aids or substances or whatever to numb that pain. That's kind of a long answer to that question. No, 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 no. It's actually really, really good. Um, it's is uh, very much the same how I would actually, in reality, approach something like that, because there are often people who sort of come to me and said, "Well, okay, that's you know." Oh, by the way, oh, you're a doctor. Okay, you, I've got that little pain there, and my typical answer <laughs> is, "Okay, come on, strip down. Let's do a first rectal examination, and then we'll take it from there." And that typically stops it dead in the in the thing because <laughs> there is a very clear difference between my professional life and my private life. So, absolutely agreed, um, and especially in those kind of things, you need to be careful with these corridor consultations. You're so true. <laughs> <laughs> so true, so true. I think the the reality is, though, it is this kind of rethinking that we need to do. Um, it is, I remember how hopeless and helpless and worthless mm -hmm. I felt, powerless in, in the face of a big institution that I felt had done, had betrayed me. And I was, I was feeling like a piece of shit, basically. And I felt mm. awful, awful, awful. And I couldn't see a way out. And I escaped my reality into alcohol. And I did, unfortunately, I never developed different coping mechanisms. So it was always that that kind of, if I fell on hard times, then the alcohol came out in abundance. And that was that was so such a vicious mm -hmm. cycle in my life mm -hmm. to actually be open 
and to look at yourself healing and strengthen your own foundations from which then you can build up a new life. That is something I had only learned in rehab or after rehab mm -hmm. when I actually literally put the, the, the training wheels on the bike and started biking again, a different kind of life and different kind of, of way of living, uh, a way of, of integrity, a, a way of truly, honestly looking how I contributed to many of the scenarios. So there were so many, mm -hmm. so many things that you, that you need to do when it comes to healing. And yes. some of the things I have done in that process were probably the hardest in my life. Mm -hmm. uh, forget about medical exams and forget about uh, all the other achievements in my life. They were relatively easy compared with dealing with the darkness in my heart. And I just give that out to you guys that, that this is on the cards. You cannot get better and you cannot change your life unless you address the pain inside of you. But again, at the same token, there has nothing more, there has been nothing more satisfying and gratifying than me doing exactly that, to literally pull that rotten tooth, to literally take a scalpel and open that abscess in my forearm and let the pus drain out. It bloody well hurts when you do it, yes. but afterwards, the pain quickly subsides. And I think that is that is the, the beautiful thing. So for those of you who are right now out there and feeling that pain, please, please, please believe me, there is hope. Mm. There is help. You might not see it right now, but mm. there is. Mm. There is. Please, please, please believe me there. And sometimes the help comes in the most unusual forms. So just be prepared. Um, <laughs> this might be someone who you haven't seen for three, four years who says, should we go for a coffee? If someone says that, take that freaking coffee, go with mm. that person, because it's very likely that someone actually takes an interest in you and wants to help you. And that might be just that little bit of hope, might just be mm. that phone call that you needed to get to, to jump into action. And Action doesn't need to be huge. Mm. It needs to to be to pick up that phone. I isolated myself. Was there in your life? Did you actually go through these cycles of, of isolating yourself that you didn't want to hear anything from anyone and rather wanted to hide in the fetal position somewhere underneath your desk or underneath your bed, not even in the bed? Well, I'm... I'm an introvert, <laughs> so all of that sounds pretty comfortable to me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, touche. <laughs> uh, the, the reality is, the reality is, that it is, it's one thing about being very comfortable with yourself and alone. That's one thing, <laughs> but not that you that you're afraid to actually even listen yes. to the phone or or or. That, that just the sheer thought that someone gets in touch with you uh, is a stressor for you. That's, I mean, rather that. Yes, yes. Oh, Stefan, absolutely. I know I was just kind of dusting there, uh, joking. 
But uh, of course, there were times where I was so depressed and so filled with anxiety and upset and anger and overwhelm. And of course, internalizing it, I, you know, so much shame and just, you know, I, I can't, I, I can't seem to get past this. I, I can't get over it. And um, yeah, just layers and layers of shame. And I, I just, that's, it felt very, very desperate many, many times. And so, yes, I want people to hear what you're saying. That message is so important. And I love the, the quote by Dr. Gabor Mate when he says, you know, it's, it's not what's wrong with you. It's what happened to you. And so it just to embrace that thinking that you have a story and to find your path, your way, a trusted professional, whatever your journey might be, like you said, somebody inviting you for coffee or, and, but somebody that you trust mm -hmm. and begin to share your story, all of your story and beginning to look for those ways um, that speak to you, that will help you to embrace a different way of of being because there there is and it's like Stefan and I are both saying it's hard work I never worked at anything as hard as I worked on my wellness nothing not the not the flute not the academics nothing not the psychology my wellness and it is I I said earlier it's a priority it, it has been it always will be and it has served me well, and that's what I want, why I do what I do. So, um, I yeah, I just I just ditto what you're saying. And the other thing I want to highlight is sometimes, no, not sometimes, all the all the time, you have to jump into action. Without action, any dream will just be that a dream. Okay. Sometimes actions have to be drastic. So if you are actually listening to this and you're finding yourself in a, a relationship that is so bad that you and maybe your children are literally at a constant risk, then maybe your action needs to be dramatic. And we are so lucky that nowadays we have got organizations like Women's Refuge or, or a similar uh, place, the Salvation Army, things like that. Uh, they, are, they are out there. They are the, with the Me Too environment. It has become more acceptable to speak out. And you might have to make that call. And, and if that means that actually we have rattled your cage enough to to mm -hmm. give you that that encouragement and please switch off the the the, the uh, your view uh, sorry the the video or the podcast right now and jump into action. Mm. Otherwise, listen to the end and then think, what is the first little step you can take? The first little baby step you can take mm -hmm. to show yourself love today. And please, 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 let me say that again. Whatever has happened to you, however bad, however sh shameful uh, it was, there is help. There is hope. There are others mm -hmm. who have gone through exactly the same and worse. Mm -hmm. So this is not a pissing contest. This is mm -hmm. not something where you say, 
oh, it's not this bad, therefore I don't deserve help. Or it is so bad, it's po- impossible that someone else has gone through it. Both of these statements are utterly wrong. And I think I, I learned that the hard way in, in rehab because I was so focused on that betrayal, on my anger, on my mm-hmm. resentment. Yeah. And my counselor gave me a book to read and it was Rise Above. Or I think that was the name of it. It's no longer in print, but it was describing the story of a, of a woman whose uh, deranged and estranged husband one day in front of her eyes killed all her children and her father uh, in the driveway. <laughs> and here I was feeling also hurt, etc. And then within 20 pages of the book, that happened. And I thought, uh, uh, uh. and it was bizarre because I needed that to see, wow, who am I to complain if that so that was exactly the right thing for me because I was so engrossed in my my. It's only here you get really only these blinkers, you know. You 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 can no longer see the whole thing. I think that's the important bit with betrayal and with anger and mm-hmm. resentment. You get so self engrossed that 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 it sometimes it's really really hard to just step back, and you can't necessarily do that if you try to do it all yourself. You don't see that. I needed that help from a counselor. I needed that help that someone actually listened to what I was saying, but more importantly, listened to what I was not saying and was able to tease that apart and let me down the path, so to speak, take the blinkers off me so that I actually mm-hmm. could see the whole story, including how I might have contributed to mm-hmm. whatever was going on. Okay, <laughs> it's, It takes two to tango, typically. Uh, so if there's a betrayal... Hmm. Now, that does not necessarily apply to, to child emotional, physical or sexual abuse. Uh, there is very little that the, the second person is tangoing. But I'm talking now relationships in, in, in a grown up uh, environment. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, we all are sometimes there. And that's that's the thing. You, that's where you heal. And that's where you accept the responsibility. And that you expect uh, accept responsibility to go out there and live your life in a more meaningful way. And that's exactly what you have done. I mean, that is, Holly, you, you went out there and actually completely turned around and now are giving back. You started writing books. How many books are out there from you now? I have 10. And um... <laughs> show off. <laughs> um, so and, pleased for you. <laughs> thank you, thank you. And um, I have a new book coming out in another month or two. Um, I I wanted to mention the daughters betrayed by their mother's book um, because if we have time, um, yes. Uh, I just uh, something that you said that made me think of this book is that. There, I interviewed, it's called Daughters Betrayed by Their Mothers, Moving from Brokenness to Wholeness. And my story is the first story. And then I I spent about 18 months interviewing six other daughters. And it was a qualitative study, uh, which I won't go into all of that. But it was a, it took a lot of work, a lot of uh, preparation, not just logistically, but also mentally and emotionally on my part. And it took about... 18 months to do all the interviews and transcribe them and do the analysis and, and then, you know, get it to my publisher and and get that out and ready for print and all of that. 
But one of the things that you said that was so beautiful about the book, that the subtitle is moving from brokenness to wholeness. And wholeness doesn't mean perfection. It just means your your they had to be able to describe their journey from brokenness to their authentic selves at, at that time and that they were um, being interviewed. And they the journeys were just so diverse and unique. I mean, there's every kind of path and and methodology and um, from just body work to dance to I mean, it, it that's what was so beautiful. And I think why this book has done so well, well, not only because the topic is something we don't talk about that is just shrouded in, in, in shame and stigma and secrecy, but that as people are reading it and males do read it too, not just females, that they can connect with so many different paths to to wellness or, you know, to wholeness and that there isn't, it's not just this straight road that goes. Um, and so it, it's, it's just, they're beautiful journeys. And I, I wanted Stefan to share one little story, if I could, if we have time is that, and, and this speaks to recovering in general. And I, I like to put an ING on the end because it's ongoing. <laughs> um, so true, so true. Tense. Um, but when I was getting, so I'd written three books on betrayal and the first edition of Breaking Through Betrayal, the second edition, and then also a, a short ebook on betrayal proofing your relationships. So I had, and of course I'd done my work and I was um, really felt that I was in a good place to do this qualitative study. And I just want to put this out there too, that over the years, as far as my relationship with my mom and dad, uh, we lived quite a ways away from them. So there was that physical boundary, but as I did my own healing I didn't wait for the betrayers. I just did my own healing. And then I established the boundaries around the relationship that I felt was safe to have for them. My mother was never really available. She was so into this enmeshment with my youngest sister was all of till her till her death. They were enmeshed. And um, so it wasn't. But whatever was there, I treated her with love and respect. But I treated myself with love and respect as well. My father and I were able to do a lot of healing around our relationship and because he was willing and he was present and he wanted to as well. He actually edited a number of my books. Oh, wow. And so because he was an avid reader and just a prolific, um, so good at, at the English language and grammar and all of that. So Anyway, a lot of beautiful healing around that relationship with him. So kind of putting that over there is that I was preparing in 2014, getting all of the forms ready, getting, and over a number of years I had been, as I go out and speak and do workshops, I would mention this topic, especially if I was speaking on betrayal, because I was looking to see if there were any participants that might want to be in the study. And so I had was collecting names and getting ready to do this. I thought I would start it in 2015 as I was working on another book at the time as well. 
So what I'm about to say, Stefan, is again, very difficult. And so I just wanted to put that out there for the listening audience. And so on April 8th of 2015, my elderly parents who were in their late 80s planned out, methodically carried out, but did not fully complete a dual suicide. Their bodies were found two days later on April 10th. My father was in critical condition. My mother was in stable but serious condition. They were taken to a local hospital. My father was released. He wanted to pass at home. Everybody knew that that was his wish. So he was released home and passed a week later under hospice care. My mother was eventually released to a, a rehab, a sort of nursing home slash rehab. And during this period of time, there was the my family was hanging on a thread already. And pretty much there were a lot of additional betrayals and, and things that happened. My husband often refers to it as Humpty Dumpty, who fell off the wall and it all came crashing down but it was barely holding on anyway. But several weeks after my mom was in rehab and I had been checking in on her long distance and, and I asked her if we could have a conversation because my youngest sister was moving in to her home, the childhood home that I grew up in with her husband and she would be taking over. And I, and I knew that. So I wanted to have a conversation with my mom and so we set a time to talk, but I didn't want my youngest sister there. And my mom honored that. I remember I wrote out on five by seven cards, the things that were important for me to say, because uh, I knew this might be our very last conversation. Not my choice, but my because of what was going to be happening when my mom left the rehab place. So we had this conversation we spoke truths to each other that had never been spoken about. Um, she was listened. Uh, I listened to her. It was very moving. It was very respectful on both parts. And towards the end of the conversation, and this might kind of surprise people when I say this, but I wanted to hear it from her. I said, mom, I know that I think I know your answer, but I'm going to ask you this one time because I know I won't be able to see you or talk to you if the youngest sister takes takes over all of you and your care and everything. Is I'm going to ask you to choose the three of us, my other two sisters and myself, or just this one time, choose me. And she said, I can't. And so I said, I know, I understand. And so we told each other we loved each other, and that was it. And after that phone call, there were stories told about it that were so untrue, just flat out lies, and it just it was twisted and everything. And so then because of that, there were more betrayals among other family members and fallout. But I share that for two reasons. One is because I couldn't have done that if I hadn't done the work that I, I'm not saying it wasn't painful, that it wasn't difficult, 
but I couldn't have done that if I hadn't done all of my work before and, and, and all the understandings I have around betrayal. And number two is that it, it validated my truths for me about my family, about everything. It was just kind of that, not that I had to have the validation, but because I've received a lot of resistance from individuals that I knew that I stood in truth, I spoke my truth, my voice came out and, and I was at peace. And a few weeks later, I received a notarized letter banning me from my childhood home. And then after my mom's passing in 2019, I received a letter from the lawyer who was handling their living trust and I was disinherited. Now, it's not that I wanted anything. It was, again, confirmation that what I knew to be true about our family dynamic and about the unhealthiness of it was still there and always would be. So last point is that continue, and I, this is important for other people, when you're on your healing journey, I believe, Stefan, is that, it, you know, sometimes you have to pull way back in and, and get recentered and refocused and shore up boundaries and remind yourself of your truth and stand in it because there's messages out there or resistance out there that doesn't want you to do that. And with this topic with mothers, that we are up against social, cultural, societal, familial, you name it, norms, that mothers are to be revered, regarded, and respected no matter what. They carry that hierarchy of power. And so, and I know because I work, all my clients, the majority of my clients right now are females who have a mother, but they don't. And they're just in such pain. So I diverted there, digressed just a little bit there, but that it's, it's hard work. And I understand that I've lived it and I continue to stand in my truths and speak them. And that's so important because only because you start working on yourself and you put all the, the, the hard work and the pain into your own recovery doesn't change other people it doesn't change their perception on the contrary if you are in a codependent scenario you're basically like that now the moment you actually stand straight and you actually develop healing a healing in yourself and become a stronger person that other person has to either crash or go there and there is this oh my god how dare she no longer support me here. So that is in, in a codependent relationship. The other mm -hmm. thing to say, one in 10 people have got a personality disorder. Mm -hmm. One in 100 people are sociopaths and psychopaths. So you will not change that. Only because <laughs> you heal, they are still nasty pieces of work. And unfortunately, if you say one in 10, that means they are actually, I don't say all personality disorders are bad, but unfortunately, I'm pretty certain that my mother, uh, 
had one and she was a nasty piece of work. And mm-hmm. I forever, and probably to this day, I go through these waves of feeling guilty that as a son, mm-hmm. I did not somehow, I don't know, I want to be, to have this warm, fuzzy memory. And my wife very quickly, whenever I get into that mode, uh, she says, can't you remember when her funeral service, when my mom had passed away, we were there at the church and after the church church service, uh, a woman that we didn't know came to us and said, so you are the son? And I said, yeah, I'm the son. And she said, I need to tell you, I mean, what your mother has told us about you um, and about your behavior and how she spoke about you was making many of us quite uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And here I thought, you bitch, you bitch, mm-hmm. I, for everything I've done to you, for everything I have, I've tried. And you, I, that was the kick in the balls that I needed to confirm that I needed to be, to stand, to stand tall. And that maybe that I was actually right. And that the guidance of my wife was right, who mm-hmm. hated my mother and I, her, her, her mother-in-law and uh for good reasons for good reasons she made her feel awful so here we are is in a very similar scenario you cannot change some people Mm -hmm. and therefore the boundaries are so important the boundaries Mm -hmm. of saying that's it here we are no it would have been quite nice to have this really beautiful picket fence everything is so fine mummy is bringing us a nice chocolate my ass um no that is unfortunately that might not be true and it will never become true however much there's only so much lipstick you can put on a turd it will still smell like <laughs> shit okay and that's unfortunately some relationships that's unfortunately some mm-hmm. people and we need to spell that out. And I'm grateful that you did actually. Um, mm-hmm. It is because that ultimately that is one of the sore points in my past. And that's something that will never resolve. You cannot resolve that. You cannot change people. Um, yes. So it is what it is. And I'm, I'm grateful that you pointed that out. Maybe also for you guys out there, that's that's maybe another thing that you just have to, again, confirm in your own head that you need to look after yourself first and give yourself the love that you maybe would have loved to receive from the other person. Mm -hmm. So don't wait for the other person to give you that love. You start loving yourself. And that is the start of a bloody great relationship with yourself. (laughs) So (laughs) I must say, Mm. I dare to say that the new you, uh, when you look into the the mirror in the morning, yes, you see some old scars and you see maybe some little things they think, "Mm, okay, okay, we need to talk you and e, me but <laughs> overall i would say 95 98 percent you are actually looking in the mirror and said okay okay this is actually not too bad am i right am i am i, <laughs> am I on the point there <laughs> yeah, absolutely you're right on the point and i think just one other thing i'd add and and stefan you this is true as i alluded to a little bit just a minute ago of 
whenever you're speaking truth to power, you know, whether it's an organization or an institution or whatever it is, or a mother or, you know, who, whatever the, the power differential is in, in your speaking truth to power, it's going to come with resistance and condemnation. And especially around mothers where there, there are other people who don't have your experience and cannot and don't get your experience. This is one of the things I hear from clients and, and that the daughters speak about in, in the daughter's book as well is that it's you're so shamed for speaking out against your mother and you, you just feel very much alone. And, and, you know, Mother's Day and all these celebrations are, are so painful and difficult. And yet you're told, you know, you need to do this. And there are these expectations. So looking at yourself in the mirror and realizing that this is your journey, it's not somebody else's, they'll be on theirs. And not to do that comparison thing, um, and not to listen to those ex that external noise or voices out there. It's your truth. Turn inward, honor it, and yourself. Exactly, Holly. What an important issue we have tackled today. This is, um, as I had expected it, uh, it was traumatic for me because it brought mm -hmm. back memories that I would have rather loved to bury mm. or in the past drown with wine or vodka or whatever else I had alcohol. Um, nowadays I've dealt with them and, but I, I knew going into this interview, there are still wounds there mm. that are no longer festering, but they're painful. Uh, it's maybe a little mm. bit of past there, a little tiny little bit mm. that I need to deal with. <laughs> a bit of chlorhexidine will do the tray. <laughs> Uh, so it is yeah it is it is what it is um but this these are our journeys and i'm i'm so grateful for you having come onto my my show and and ripped the band-aid off and had a look underneath them that's mm. that's what we all need that's what we all need to grow and to be those people that we truly want to be who we truly yes. want to be and so, so important. Now, uh, please show me again your books because you have got your books there and I want everyone out there to see because I think they're really, really important. Okay, the here's the daughter's book. And um just want to mention this, Stefan. It has a, a shell on the front and a pearl in it. And um I, there's this beautiful quote you may have heard of it by Stefan Heller and this is the end of it it says that a pearl is a beautiful thing produced by an injured life and so the whole book is is built around that metaphor of we have these injuries and just like the pearl takes time for that lacra to make it the beautiful beautiful gem that it is um, mm -hmm. we take the time to make ourselves that that beautiful gem as well and I was researching pearls when I found that quote and I knew I wanted to use it for the book and something I learned about pearls is that um, when they're well first of all when they're held up to the light authentic pearls are real they're very translucent and very deep in their color 
And also when you touch them, they're cold, but when you put them up against your body, they warm. Mm -hmm. And then this beautiful piece is that, again, when they're held, a real pearl held up to the light has kind of like, oops, <laughs> my microphone, a little halo that, that shines on it. And so I, I share that because the stories of the daughters, it will warm their soul. I get emotional when I talk about this <laughs> and their stories will shed light, will give you light, a healing light and hope that if this is your issue, um, that you can move through it and you can move past it and, and let your light shine. So I just wanted to share that. And um, then my other book, if for any kind of betrayal, any kind, no matter what it is, is that. I, if I could answer that these, which I did, what is betrayal? What are my clients feeling and why and how long and to what degree they're feeling? If I could answer those three questions and I would design a program tailored specifically for recovery from any kind of betrayal. And that's what I did. And so the, the first part is breaking through the betrayal. It's a self-help book full of assessments and exercises. The second part, which begins with the chapter, write yourself is recovering the peace within. And uh, so I know that it's possible. I've done it, others have done it. And I just wish that for your listening audience to not stay stuck in your betrayals. I say, let's get better, let's not stay bitter. Um, let's get better. Holly, thank you so much. These are such true words, and we too are proof that you can get better. And we both have alluded you today and me in previous uh, interviews how bad actually things had been. And we certainly, this uh, we don't need to go into many details, but trust me, guys out there um, in a contest. Um, pretty up there podium level <laughs> as bad and so therefore if we can if we two can get our act together guys you mm. so can you there is hope there is help there's help mm. you know you just listened to an expert on betrayal <laughs> for crying out loud don't tell me that oh i don't know one can understand me well do you, you think so you think so really so therefore if you wanted to know more about holly look down there into the description of the video and of the uh, podcast because all the the links are there so there are beautiful books to be read and there might even be an option for you to connect with holly so mm -hmm. holly if they want to say hello to you and if they actually if people think wow really i i would love to get to know you more how can they do that i'm on most of the social networking sites stefan is mm. you know I, I i'm there facebook instagram linkedin all of that or if you want to send me well you can send me direct messages on some of those but I also have a contact page on my website where I get a lot of, you know, that's why it's private. It's secure. Mm. It's a secure website. Um, I will respond. I love connecting, hearing from people. Um, that's why I'm here. It's why I do what I do. And um, I can shorten your stay in the pain field. Mm. I'm available. <laughs> <laughs> and guys you would be silly not to take that offer honestly um and maybe if maybe i need to take that that offer <laughs> 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 
having having said that, I actually know someone who needs it more. So I need to have a word with that person and we'll see where that all goes. But I think the reality is uh, it, this is our life. If we take control over, over those little tiny baby steps, you have no idea where this path will lead you. And uh, we mm -hmm. so, Holly and I so invite you to come on board on this fantastic journey yes. called recovery and healing. And it might sound corny if you, if and it might sound unbelievable and uh, saccharine in nature and weird. How can they be so happy out there? We are so happy because we have been in the darkness. We have been we have seen the trauma we haven't seen we fucking lift the trauma we were deep in it and that's why we nowadays are here that's why we spend an hour and a bit together to actually show you guys it, it is possible the past does not equal the future and you determine what you make out of this feud out of this future so guys i believe in you you can do it mm -hmm. don't give up Holly, to you, thank you so much for coming mm -hmm. on to my show. It was a true honor to have you on my show. Thank you, Stefan, so much. Sure. I really appreciate it and um, have yeah. a good day. And the same to you. Look after yourself out there. Bye. Bye.